Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, what's going on today? Steve, it is good to see you and it is good to be recording another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. Yes, I'm excited for it. Because, you know, we've got kind of a, uh, a pressure-filled podcast coming up. We do. I don't feel under pressure to record, which is probably why I'll do a pretty good job recording. Although, pressure isn't always a bad thing, and we're going to get into all of that and more. Last week, we talked in detail about the stress of Olympians and really using that as a gateway into the stress that we all ca- we all, excuse me, we all feel and carry when pursuing things that we care deeply about. And we got a couple of notes and messages from listeners wanting to get a little bit more concrete. So if last week was the conceptual underpinnings of why we feel pressure and stress and sometimes even struggle with our mental health when we're pursuing things we care deeply about, this week is going to be about in the moment when you step up to the start line, when you get on the stage, you walk into the door to that meeting, you pitch the proposal, whatever it is, your heart's racing, your palms are sweaty. What do you do in that moment? That's what we're going to talk about today. All right, let's let's dive in. You know, for a second there, every time you say like your palms are sweaty, I'm I'm expecting Eminem to go off. You know. So, yeah. Well, you know, did you watch the Super Bowl halftime show? I did. Yeah. Yeah. This is what happens when our generation finally works its way up and is in charge of programming. We get some actual good stuff. All right. So, gotta love it. I was getting texts from all of my Gen X and millennial coaching clients saying the same thing. And I think there's a real neat bond happening between Gen X and the millennials because, you know, us millennials, we care really deeply about everything. And Gen X, they don't care about anything. And there's no tension. It's just like the perfect marriage. So, I'm really, I'm nothing against boomers, but I'm excited for for the Gen X millennial pairing to, to step up. And I think the Super Bowl halftime show is an early win because I can guarantee the executive directors and producers of that were all in Gen X or millennials. It's what we do. We roll. <laughs> all right. Time to save the world, uh, Gen X slash millennials. Starting with Well, no, that. that's the issue. Gen X isn't going to save anything. Gen X is like millennials, man. Like, you guys step up. We're not going to get in your way. We're not going to have any tension. We're just going to sit here and make sure that Jay and Snoop Dogg are on the stage to to make it fun. <laughs> There's right. actually a, a really good new book out on Gen X um, by Chuck Klosterman. And he opens the book by saying that Gen X is the only generation not to get canceled because they've already canceled themselves. And I think part of the reason, too, that I'm just so intrigued by Gen X is because so many of my coaching clients are like, you know, in in their early to mid 40s, maybe some are right around 50, and they're really hitting this peak of their career. And it's just such a different mindset that they have. And it's really refreshing than people in our generation have and people in our parents' generation. So um, if you're listening to this in Gen X, you know, I'm a fan. All right. Tandem. Last thing, last thing as I go on my Gen X rant, and I don't know how many listeners we have. Another reason I love Gen X is think about if you're listening to Steve and I talking, I want you to keep coming back and to keep listening to Steve and I talking. But 
If you really want to listen to Two Good Talkers, go find the conversations between Malcolm Gladwell and Bill Simmons. Those guys, I could listen to them talk for 24 hours straight. They are professional, fun, conversationalist talkers. Guess what else? They're both in Gen X. So I'm just saying, like, it's the most underrated generation by far. And part of that is because the bar is about an inch off the ground, but they surpass it. So, all right, we're not talking about generational uh, performance today, but I, um, I wanted to give Gen X their due. All right. Uh, that was a tangent I didn't expect. So there you go. That's what you get on the Growth Equation podcast. But speaking of either feeling like the weight of the world is on your shoulders and you have to save it or that, you know, you just don't care and you're chilled out. What we're going to talk about is is pressure, how to handle that, you know, how it can aid performance or take away from it. And I think, you know, maybe that's the place to start is we always think pressure. And I think often we think of pressure as taking away or harming performance. And the reality is like it's like everything that we talk about, there's nuance here. It's a continuum. And the, the classic look at this is the uh, the Yerkes-Dodson curve, which essentially plots out, we'll call it pressure, you could call it anxiety, depends on when you look at it, and performance, right? And there's this nice, you need a little bit to get amped up, to be in this sweet spot where you're at this kind of top of the, the, uh, the curve. But if you get too much, you start going down the down the the bad path. Your performance starts to plummet. Now, an important caveat here is that there are certain things where that curve applies, where a little is, you know, pressure, anxiety isn't good, but too much isn't good. There's this sweet spot. And then there are other activities where it's almost linear, right? Where anxiety just makes things worse. And these are generally the these activities where you have this kind of one-to-one relationship often are kind of like the the fine what I'd call the fine control activities, right? Where even a little bit of adrenaline can send your hand like shaking and not not being able to uh, do the thing. So let's let's start there with framing it as pressure can be good. It can also send you spiral. All right. So let's start defining in even more concrete terms the difference between good pressure and pressure that sends you spiraling, right? So good pressure is pressure that arouses you and it elevates a stress response that helps you to focus on what is happening, to zone in and to really be primed to get the most out of yourself. And if you think about way back in evolution, the mechanism behind this, it's actually quite intuitive and simple. If you are on a trail and you see a tiger or a lion or a predator, and you are a primate or a very early human, your heart rate's gonna go way up. Your blood pressure is gonna rise. Your body temperature is gonna go up. Why is that? because you see a freaking tiger or a lion 
And that arousal, that stress response is what helps you latch in and immediately feel like you are completely in the zone. Same thing with snakes, right? Humans evolved because snakes are on the ground. We don't see them to just have this instantaneous reaction to seeing a snake. And all of those mechanisms that are happening in your body, they're actually to a point working in service of a great performance. Now, if it gets so out of control that you disassociate, we discussed this a little bit last week on the podcast, it's not helpful. And if it gets so out of control that your brain starts firing off these thoughts to go with those feelings, such as, oh my gosh, why am I feeling this way? Oh my gosh, what does that mean? Then it's also not great. But there's nothing wrong with a moderately elevated heart rate, moderately elevated blood pressure, moderately elevated body temperature before a big performance. That is just what we evolved to do. And I can share a very interesting personal experience here that really brought this to light because, um, you know, it's one thing to talk about and hypothesize what ancient ancestors had to deal with, and it's another thing to experience it. So this is going to make one of our, our good friends happy that loves to tell this story and it gets crazier every time. But this is a true story. When we first moved to Asheville, I knew that there were bears around, but I did not know that we have the highest bears per capita of anywhere in America. So there's bears everywhere in Asheville. I didn't know this. And this is in the early stages of the pandemic. And I am training in my garage. I'm doing what's called a bent over barbell row. So I'm hinging at the hips and I'm pulling a barbell to my chest and I'm locked in on my training and I finish a set and I set the barbell down and I look up in about two feet from me is the face of a 600 pound black bear. And I could hear it breathe. I could smell it. And let me tell you, I don't know what happened. All I know is that an instant later, I was on the stairs of the garage into the house. The bear was unfazed. I gathered myself enough to get a little video. So there is proof that there was a bear that close. And it was the coolest thing I've ever experienced. Like it, it fully made me understand maybe why like an Alex Honnold puts himself in like a stress response free soling because I felt so freaking alive. Now, this isn't during the process. During the process of moving back from the bear, it, I don't know what happened. I have no conscious memory of that. But once I gathered myself, it was this rush of adrenaline and arousal, and I just felt on top of the world. I felt like I could do anything. So that is the power of a stress response. Now, you can imagine that if I was walking into a public speaking engagement or to try to sell a book to a publisher feeling that level of arousal it might backfire. But I'm telling that story because the point is like, we are programmed to go into those states for very good reason when there's an acute stressor. It's just all about matching the level of response to the acute stressor. When there's a bear in your face, yeah, the level of response is somehow safely get back from the bear. When you're about to give a presentation to your company, you probably don't want to have that big of a stress response. I love that story. I too have had my own bear encounter as well on a run and had a similar experience of freezing because there was a bear right in front of me and then blanking out you know slowly backing away and somehow finding myself away from the bear and then this jolt of adrenaline I think I must have run like a sub five mile the next mile just because I was just like 
and it felt easy because I was just like, oh my gosh, get back to the the start of the trail. Anyways, um, the way I like to think of this is pretty simple, is the brain is predictive. So your level of, of, of response is whatever your, your kind of brain body connection thinks is going to allow you to survive because that's what we're supposed to do. So if we see the bear, then you're going to have a huge response and you're going to instantly like either freeze and back away or move, whatever it is, the, the quickest, the best chances to have you survive. The problem comes in modern life often is we have these predictions that don't match up or line up with reality. So we're about to go up on stage and it feels like it's life or death. Why? Maybe we built this presentation up like we've said, this is our make or break moment, blah, blah, blah. And instead of viewing this as like a a very challenging thing that, you know, is going to be difficult. But, you know, even if we, you know, fail up there, like we're still alive. It's not a big deal. It's almost like our brain interprets it as like, this is life or death. Like there is threat, legitimate harm coming your way from standing on that stage. And you have this inappropriate prediction, which means inappropriate stress response that doesn't match up, which allows you to, to perform well. So when you see it like that, you realize like we have all these different levers that our kind of brain can pull to get us in a state where we're ready to respond. And our goal in dealing with pressure is pretty simple, is not to avoid it, not to like deny that stress responses happen, but to try to get our brain, body, et cetera, to pull the right lever to match up with the demands of whatever it is we're about to do. Yeah. All right. So then we promised that we were going to get really concrete. So I think that let's just dive right in. So then when you're in the moment and you're having a stress response like that, there are two extreme ways of handling it. The first is to try to intentionally diminish it and bring it down. And this would be something like a breathing technique or a mantra or a visualization. The other extreme is to try to completely tap into it and allow it to fire you up even more. And this is picture a football player coming out of a locker room, just barreling, beating their chests. So those are two complete extremes. Totally try to shut it down. Totally channel it. Now, unless you're walking onto a football field or you have training as a world-class level meditator, Zen master, neither of those approaches work too well for most situations that we find ourselves in. So then the approaches become, are you taking the stress response along for the ride and not worrying about it? Or are you attempting to call it in some way? And These are both pretty viable strategies depending on the context and your skills. What's interesting is that research has found unless you have an extensive period of practice in calling a stress response, it is generally better to just accept that it's happening and take it along for the ride. And the reason for this is it's very, very hard 
to turn down a stress response. Even if intellectually, you know, there's no bear, I'm just going to a meeting. Well, you can't really fake out your body. If your body and mind care, then you're going to be locked in to some sort of stress response. And the worst thing you can do is try to calm yourself down, have that not work. And then you freak out even more because you're basically like, I can't even calm myself down. This must mean it's really bad. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then boom. I personally use the strategy of waiting for the gun to go off, which I'll let Steve explain because I think I I, I first heard it put in those words by you um, in the backseat of a lift crossing the Bay Bridge on the way to one of our first big talks together years ago in San Francisco. And we were, um, we were both having our stress response. Like we thought that there was a bear after us when in fact we were just about to get paid for the first time to talk to a group of hundreds of people. And Steve is just like, I'm, I'm, I'm stressed. I'm like, me too. He's like, it's all right. We just got to wait for the gun to go off. So what do you mean by that? Because it's a strategy that, um, that I often use still and, and use with my coaching clients too. Yeah, so I remember that pretty uh, pretty distinctly, and it's funny. Um, it's funny what stresses you out at the time. But we were, we were both, you know, getting ready to go do a joint speaking experience in front of a major company, one of our early ones, getting paid a lot, all that good stuff. So all of these things contributed to make both Brad and I feel like, oh gosh, like we've got to perform, like we've got to live up to our our billing here. And waiting till the gun goes off basically means that you acknowledge that when you're in the arena, when you start doing the thing, your training will take over. And the stress response that you feel now will just kind of dissipate into the background. You just got to get to the point where you're doing the thing that you know how to do. In running terms, we call it wait till the gun goes off. Why? Well, the anxiety during the warm up, during while you're waiting, you know, on the starting line, that's when the anxiety is the highest, right? You just feel it, feels almost overwhelming. As soon as the gun goes off, that all goes away because you're defaulting into doing the thing that you have trained to do and your attention is captured elsewhere. Right, Your focus of attention is no longer on the thoughts and worry that might come with that anxiety, but it's on doing the actual thing, right? So that that's the key there is whether you're lining up for a race, whether you're going for a talk, whether you're giving a presentation, like getting the point to the point where you're doing the action and taking comfort in once you get to that point you're going to be okay. Now, I use this strategy a lot too. And I add in one wrinkle, which is because I think this helps a lot, is that when the gun goes off, you know what to do. You get off the line and you start racing, right? If you can make that first part when the gun goes off something that you're comfortable with, that you just default to, it further enhances this kind of dissipation effect. So for example, if I'm giving a speech, I really want to know what I'm saying in that first that that like first slide or that first line. Like what what is the first, you know, couple sentences that I'm saying or the first story that I'm telling? If I can nail that, 
the rest is just it's just smooth sailing because that puts you in the zone no different than starting a race if i know hey if i get off the line in the first hundred meters then the rest i know what to do you're just putting yourself in position so really nailing or understanding or training for that that first little bit of whatever it is you're you're performing i think is crucial because that sets the stage love it so what's interesting and i was wondering if you'd say this and you did so it teed me up really nicely is you said it's funny looking back how stressed out we were because now on the way to a talk there's always going to be some stress response at least for me but i have no problem calling it down so the strategy's changed because i've done that talk a lot of times so when i tell myself this actually isn't that big of a deal you're going to be fine my mind body system has a lot of evidence to prove that so it chills out so those different extremes of trying to turn it off versus taking it along with you they change over time too based on your experience and the analogy here that i love to use is if you walk into a living room and there's this enormous tiger in the corner, you freak out. But then if you walk in every day and that tiger is in the corner or you walk by every day and it doesn't move at all, you start to get a little curious. And then maybe by the 50th day, you're like, why isn't this tiger moving? And you get closer. And then you realize that it's actually a tiger made out of paper. It's a paper tiger. But it took walking by the room a bunch of times for you to realize that. And I think with things like speaking gigs or athletic competitions, um, dating for some people, like the, the the strategy of take along, wait for the gun to go off versus try to turn it down is completely contingent on whether you think the tiger's real or fake. And the only way to turn a real tiger into a fake tiger is by walking by it a bunch of times. So in our case now, I don't know, we've done at least 50 big speaking gigs in the last decade. So they're not that big of a deal anymore. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that that's a great point. And a lot of this is is the self-awareness, right? I like to call it when we're we're talking about dealing with anxiety or pressure or performance, anxiety, whatever have you, is you got to develop both tools. You got to have the flexibility to, right? To turn the the dial up or down, like that volume dial. And at some point, you know, as you just pointed out there, you're only going to have one choice, right? because you don't have the skill to do the other, you know, go in the opposite direction. That's fine. But that means over time, you need to develop that skill, whether that's putting yourself in the arena, you know, more often, or also, you know, developing different coping strategies to be able to go in that other direction. Yes. And not freaking out at the moment. Like I have such a, I am so glad you brought this up because I wouldn't have thought of it, but I have yet another example. So I did a big talk here in Asheville um, during the phase of the pandemic when cases were very low. And it was my first talk in over a year because of the pandemic. And I'm like, all right, it's just another talk. I'll calm myself down. And I got there and I was still like feeling a lot of nerves because I hadn't done this in a year. And in the moment, instead of freaking out that I couldn't calm myself down, because we've had this discussion so many times, I was able to say, all right, like, I guess I'm going to feel anxiety all the way up to my first slide. So screw it. Here we go. Let's be anxious. And that was so much better than freaking out about the fact that my normal way of calming myself down before a talk didn't work. So it's a lot of nuance here. Not only is it not binary over time, but even 
when you think that you've gained the experience to calm yourself down, if suddenly you're in a position where you can't, the ability not to freak out and just to let go of that is like ultimately what's going to get you up there in a way where you're not fighting against your anxiety. Because anxiety is not fun, but trying to make anxiety go away and having it not go away is so much worse than just anxiety. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to having like giving yourself a full tool belt, right? Where you have all these tools that you can access and you might have a particular favorite one that works the majority of the time, but you got to have a backup in case that one fails, right? And and that that to me is what dealing with performance anxiety is all about, is over your career or your life, cultivating and developing different tools to be able to pull out when something doesn't work. And if you can do that, you're going to be in a you're going to be in a better spot. Yep. And here I do think that um a uh, uh, mindfulness meditation practice is so helpful. And not for the reason that a lot of people think. A lot of people think it's helpful because it teaches you to calm down. Which maybe it does, but what it absolutely does that's even more powerful is when you sit with your eyes closed and try to focus on your breath for five to 30 minutes a day consistently, all the stuff that you don't want to think about pops into your brain. And you watch the same patterns of anxiety, of depression, of jealousy, of desire, you name it, come up again and again and again. And if you can learn to just watch them come up, something fascinating happens over time. You really start to, in your bones, not just intellectually know this, but realize that thoughts are just like these phenomena that happen and then go away. In feelings, they happen and they go away. They come, they ebb, they flow. Sometimes they're pretty intense and they crest, but eventually they go away. So what meditation does is it allows you to have those feelings or to have those performance anxiety-related thoughts and to remember, which is, by the way, like mindfulness translated in Sanskrit literally means to remember. So you're remembering like, these are just thoughts. These are just feelings. They're mental formations or physical formations. They come, they add, they flow, they go. And that I think is almost like certainly for most people more powerful than any kind of being able to calm yourself down or calming effect. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. I think another way to address this and something that I worked or I use often when I uh, with the people that I coach is during, we'll call it practice, you know, that could be athletic, that could be just what you do in your workspace. Let your mind go to a bad place. And what I mean by that is in practice, you're safe, secure. If you quote unquote fail, it doesn't really matter. So instead of avoiding the thoughts, the feelings, the anxiety that, you know, can push and nudge you, towards you know quitting or 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 whatever performance uh poor performance let your mind go there in this place and then really work with using different strategies to figure out how to get out of that spot or how to accept that spot right when i was working with college distance runners we'd have workouts where i'd be like you know what if (laughs) if you have thoughts of like quitting or this sucks or I want to be anywhere but here, really try and amplify those, like dive into that, 
Why? Because if you can deal with that, if you can make yourself comfortable with that or teach yourself how to accept that in a place that is safe and secure, then when your mind inevitably goes there under high pressure situations, then it's at least familiar. And to me, again, it's all it's all about if our stress response is predictive, then we need to give our brain like more scenarios, more familiarity, so it like can make better predictions, so that it can have a better match, and all of that good stuff. Well, I'm glad that you brought up this notion of practice and practicing a stress response, uh, because it gives us a chance to plug our Patreon community. So if you find this kind of information interesting and you want to go to the next level, we highly recommend that you check us out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. For as little as $5 a month, you get access to a monthly book club where we have live discussions with the authors talking about concepts like performance anxiety and mental health and resilience. We have a quarterly mastermind group and a monthly peer group meetup where individual community members can come together facilitated by ourselves or by members of the group to talk about how they wrestle with these own concepts in their own lives. You immediately on joining get our exclusive guides to resilience and to the building blocks of sustainable performance. Um, And you get special access to podcasts and signed books and all kinds of other good stuff. So it's what allows us to keep this podcast completely independent, 100% member funded. We've got over 340 people in the community. It's growing fast. It's a great community. Um, We think it's a win-win. We appreciate your support. It allows us to keep doing what we do. And we really do believe that it's a phenomenal value for a pretty little fee. So to learn more, check it out, www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. All right. So you mentioned this notion of um, practicing in a shitty situation. I think the stoic term for this is negative visualization. And I think it's really effective and it's very contrarian because normally you're like, okay, like in practice, calm yourself down and like learn how to calm yourself down. And what you're saying to be clear is like actually visualize like the worst possible thing happening. You blew up your presentation. The minute before you went on stage, you found out that your girlfriend dumped you. Um, Like just, just the worst possible thing and then go through the motions of practicing because what you're teaching yourself is even if you feel like crap, you can still go up there, show up, do the work good enough, if not great. And I agree. I think that that's a lot more valuable than trying to create conditions in practice where you calm yourself down. Now, again, it's not always either or because if you're really focused on like some sort of like mantra or breathwork practice to turn down a stress response, then of course you're going to practice that. But I think a lot of those mantras and like certain ways of taking like a big deep breath and sighing, I think they're oversold because to actually make them work in the moment, not in practice, but in the real world, it requires like hundreds and thousands of reps in practice. And unless you want to go and do that, 
Um, for most people, it makes a lot more sense just to like practice being uncomfortable and get to a point where you don't have to like it, but you are okay enough with it. Yeah. You know, I should say on those mantras, the breathing, the size, like all of those things are real and they, they work, but what I'd call them is like, they're almost like attention or physiological tricks which can calm the nervous system down, but they often work under what I'd call low or moderate anxiety, right? And what we're, we're talking about, especially in this, is that por- performance anxiety where your mind is just racing. And those tricks, they're not enough, right? It's like, um, it's like taking a, a, a water hose to a, a blazing fire, like the you're you're sitting there being like but water puts out fire why isn't this working well it would work you know in your your backyard grill but if something large is on fire your little water hose isn't going to do it you need to call in the big guns and i think that's what we're getting at here is that it's often better to prepare so that you're not just kind of using these small shifts and have something in your back pocket to deal with when the anxiety is is overwhelming. A, a couple other things that I think are important here that we've kind of danced around is, that can contribute is we set our expectations. So if if you set your expectations in the wrong manner so that your mind thinks that, hey, this is actually kind of life or death, then you're setting yourself up for an extreme stress response, right? And what do I mean by this? Often we talk about, oh, set like unbelievable goals or what have you, and that that can motivate you. But it can also backfire because if you set this extremely out there goal or have this expectation that this thing should go flawlessly or perfectly, the moment it doesn't seem like it is, your brain goes, up. Oh, our prediction was wrong. Like, hit the eject button, throw more anxiety in here. Like, bail, bail, bail. We need to be in survival mode, not performance mode. So setting appropriate expectations. Same thing goes with, like, goals, having, you know, appropriate goals. And also, the last thing I'd say as well is you set the expectation of how important this thing is based on how much you identify with it. So if my entire identity is around, let's say, running, then yes, when I line up for that race, winning or losing can feel like life or death because it's the only thing that I, I focus on or the only thing I identify with in my life. Well, we can control that. So having, you know, putting things in the right space, not tying your entire sense of self to whatever, you know, pursuit or job it is, it doesn't diminish motivation. It actually puts it in the right spot so that you can handle, you know, whatever challenge comes your way. Yeah. And that's probably a whole other podcast. We'll throw it in the show notes, but it was the topic of last week's newsletter article around identity and achievement. And in particular, how I totally agree with what Steve is saying and how challenging it is to go from more of like an identity connection threat-based way of performing to losing that 
but still being able to find that extra gear. Because when you got the bear in your face or your mind-body system feels like it, it's really easy to find that extra gear. But when you know you're not under threat, of course, you're not going to be anxious. But the problem is it can be hard to get aroused sometimes. So um, I, I, I got to bring in some philosophy here. You know, the philosopher and poet T.S. Eliot so elegantly said, like, teach me to care and teach me not to care. And I think you could update that for um, science speak. And it's like, teach me to turn on the stress response and teach me to turn off the stress response. Um, or teach me to care enough, but not too much. And I do think that, um, that it's really hard, particularly in pursuits that have been so connected to your identity to outgrow that connection to your identity, which ultimately is healthy and still find that extra gear. That's really hard. Yeah. I mean, it, it comes back to what we said earlier is like, have the, have the tool in your toolbox to amplify, dampen and accept. And, you know, there's a reason that the football player gets so amped up with the, the locker room like hype video and comes out screaming out and going nuts. It's because, you know what? That's how he is turning that stress up so much in a activity that is kind of violent and kind of requires some of that like life or death. Okay, let's go to battle. And... And I think you're right. You know, I think most of us struggle on the opposite end of like creating space between what we do and who we are and turning things down when we need to. But there are situations where we need to learn how to, you know, how do we flip the switch of of caring? How do we make this meaningful so that we don't just shrug our shoulders or, you know, not try or, or drop out? Yeah. And that's exactly what the, the newsletter post last week was about in my own experience of strength training, like for the first time, really not having my performance in sport matter that much at all for how I see myself and it being totally freeing, but also like clueless on how to find that extra gear to go hard because I'm like, it just doesn't matter. And part of me is not sure if that's a cop out part of me not sure if that's like super mature development and it's probably a little bit of both and and i don't have the answer that's what i look forward to exploring so anyways as i said that's probably a whole other podcast there's a long blog post on it if you didn't read it last week we'll pop it in the show notes um anything else steve i feel like we made a lot of good headway on this topic we explored the uh the two extremes of complete diminished shutdown and complete channel we talked about how in the real world, both those things are hard. So it's a continuum. And we talked about having the flexibility to know which of those approaches to take when, and even in the moment to be able to switch out of one and into the other, particularly if you're trying to diminish and it doesn't work, being able just to say, all right, I'm taking stress along for the ride. We talked about good arousal versus bad anxiety. And um, in the end there, we talked a little bit about kind of the broader picture of how much are you attached to something and how that can help give you that extra gear, but it can also increase the stress response and performance anxiety at the same time. And it's all about learning how to work with these things in, in, in meaningful, skillful ways. Yeah, no, I think that's a great summary. The only thing I'd add is I think it's really important that performance and anxiety, we often look for the hacks. And the hacks work in small situations, like maybe if you're 
taken a test for some course, right? Do some breathing, calm yourself down, all that good stuff. But in the larger situations, they often fail. And the better thing to do is not go for the quick hack, but establish some sort of practice where you can work on turning the volume up, turning the volume down, going to a bad space and navigating and figuring your way through it. And if you do that over the long haul, then you're going to have the tools in your tool belt to be able to navigate difficult situations and pressure and anxiety, kind of regardless of where it comes from. Yep. I love it. Um, I guess, you know, the the only other thing to to add is that just get those reps in, right? Whether it's the the small things in little situations or the big things, like if you want to stress out less before public speaking, you got to public speak. I mean, in, in to Steve's point, like I wish that there was something we could give you. I mean, short of like Clonopin or Xanax, there is no supplement or, or magic magic bullet. And those aren't advised either because those will put you to sleep up there. Um, so yeah, it's it's tricky. And I think that's, that's the point. So we appreciate you listening. Um, again, if you want to go deeper, check us out on Patreon. And if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, your friends, your family members. Um, we're slowly growing and we really do want to be a leading voice in this field of mental health performance and excellence that, well, to us anyways, is unfortunately a contrarian voice because there is just so much junk out there about the over complexification of mechanisms and supplements and quick fixes and all of these things that are really enticing and promising, um, but they just don't work. And it's harder to sell the fundamentals and the basics because they are simple and they're not bright and shiny. But as we always say, simple doesn't mean easy. So what we're trying to do is teach y'all how to apply the basics and how to use them consistently. And it is our feeling that if more people could do that, there wouldn't be a trillion dollar market for supplements and hacks that don't work. So stay with us. We try to keep you practicing. We try to do it ourselves and, and practice what we preach. So um, yeah, pass on the word. We're really trying to grow this thing and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.